Last week we were talking primarily about Jeremiah being in a total minority. Nobody wanted to hear his message. Everybody loved the message of the false prophets, and uh, they were the majority. I only wish I had this little cartoon clip last week. If you're watching the live stream, you can't see it, so I'll try to explain it to you. There's two churches right next to each other. One pastor is standing over what his Sunday message is going to be. It says, what God has said. Uh, Not one person is going into that church. (laughs) And the church right next to it is uh, lined up. Sermon on that particular church is what you would rather hear. (laughs) And that one's all packed out. So I wish I had this last week, but I couldn't resist. I had to at least bring it up this week. How true it is. You know, the scriptures say that in in the last days, there would be this gravitational pull, having itching ears, just being told what you want to hear. I can guarantee you this morning's message (laughs) is not one of those. I've entitled it, Love the Heart of Discipline. And it's a vital, vital uh, part of um, not only getting saved, but that continual, because of the Father's love, correction. When we, as humans, fall short, where he's faithful to um, speak to us and deal with us in his own way. Uh, Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14 is our text. Paul was reading for us this morning. Let's pick it up there. Thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope, and then you will call upon me and go and pray to me. I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will bring you back from your captivity and from the place where I have driven you, says the Lord. I will bring you to the place for which I caused you to be carried away captive." Uh, The background to this is uh, important. So you can see, as we we go through uh, Jeremiah, he ministered to Judah before, during, and after this captivity in Babylon. So I'd like you to turn back to 2 Kings chapter 24. I want to talk real briefly about the last three kings and... uh, the three different times that Nebuchadnezzar came against Judah and Jerusalem. In chapter 24, it says, In the days Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years, then he turned and rebelled against the Lord. This is what we call the first siege. And when he came the first time, um, Nebuchadnezzar sort of took the cream of the crop. This is when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the best intellects, uh, the people with the best skills, they were all taken back during the first wave. Now, when you get down to verse 8, there's a different king. His name is Jeconiah, uh, I mean Jehoiachin, sometimes referred to as Coniah. And in these verses, uh, 8 through Oh, 16, this would have been the second siege. This time when Nebuchadnezzar came down, um, he, he carried certain treasures back to Babylon. We read in verse 13, treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king house, the gold of Solomon um, that was made in the temple. And he carried some more people back to captivity in Babylon. Now, when you get to chapter 25, uh, the last king, his name is Zedekiah, if you look at verse 2 of chapter 25, so the city was besieged until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. This time, this will be the third and final time that King Nebuchadnezzar will surround the city of Jerusalem, but he will completely destroy it this time. And anybody left is going to be killed, or a couple will be left behind to, to tend some of the, um, some parts of, of the land. But I want to especially draw attention to verse 9, 
because the heart and the soul of Israel and Jerusalem in particular would have been Solomon's temple. And we read in verse nine that Nebuchadnezzar burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem burned with fire. Now in November, we're actually gonna be there and we're, we're gonna look at some of the houses that were burned um, during Herod's time. It's actually called the burnt house. And it, it, um, it's uh, one of the things that we like to take the people and actually show them the destruction that happened in 70 AD. Let me get a little sidetracked here and do something. Um, it's really a mind blower. Because the day that this happened, in verse 9, uh, is dated as the ninth of Av. Now, Av is one of, we have our months and we have names for our months. We're in August right now. And um, as a matter of fact, one week from today is going to be the ninth of Av. Every year it happens on a different date, but um, the temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed on the ninth of Av. Now, I'm going to just list 12 of these. Um, we did some research a couple of years back, and we were curious what other historical events took place during this time, this particular day, the 9th of Av. Well, what we discovered is that not only was Solomon's temple destroyed on the 9th of Av, but Herod's temple um, was also destroyed, as Jesus said it would in Luke 19, He said, because you didn't know the time of my coming. He says, what's going to happen is the city is going to be laid siege to. And uh, there won't be one stone left upon another. And he, he was predicting an event that would happen 38 years later in 70 AD when the 10th Roman Legion came down and completely destroyed uh, the city of Jerusalem and the day that the temple was destroyed was the ninth of Av. And I made mention of it last week. So both temples were destroyed on exactly the same Jewish day. Here, it was 587 BC, the first temple. The second temple, which is called Herod's Temple, was August 4th, 70 AD, or the ninth of Av. Then one year later, uh, the Romans returned and uh, they plowed salt into the city of Jerusalem to keep it from growing anything. That happened on the 9th of Av. There was um, uh, 12 events. I'm sure there's many, many more, but I'm going to list only uh, 12 here. In um, 1095, on July 14th, Pope Urban II killed 10,000 Jews in, his, in the first month of Crusades. Uh, the Crusaders uh, brought death and destruction to thousands of Jews, totally obliviating uh, many uh, communities in Paris, around France. Um, in 1190, on the 9th of Av, 500 Jews died as a result of storming a castle. In 1290 A.D., England expelled all the Jews, and that happened on the 9th of Av. In 1492, Spain expelled all of the Jews out of their country. World War I started on the 9th of Av. Uh, Russia mobilized for World War I and, and, and launched um, attacks in eastern Russia, on the 9th of Av. Uh, Germany began a systematic liquidation of the ghettos and uh, boarded Jews to places like Auschwitz and Birkenau. And um, the, the uprising on the 10th of July in 1942 happened to be on the 9th of Av. Um, these 12 that are mentioned here uh, the odds of 12 events happening to the same people, the same country, over the centuries on the same day 
is, and I gotta get my notes out for this because I'm not used to talking in forms of numbers like this. Um, the chances are um, 15 octillion, 318 septillion, and 685 sextillion, 820 quintillion. A quintillion is eight twenties with 18 zeros after it. So we're used to billion and trillion. That's still farther down the list. So what am I basically saying? The probability of this happening to one ethnic group, and by the way, the Jewish people are the only ethnic group that has ever been dispersed from their country. When did that happen? 70 AD. Every other culture, you don't hear of Philistines or Hittites or um, Ammonites or termites, you know, they don't. (laughs) They're simply assimilated into the culture that they move into. Not true with the Jewish people. They're the only people that had all these events happen to them that actually, like the Lord said, Isaiah 11, verse 11 says, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back a second time. And if you notice our text back in uh, um, Jeremiah, actually what he's referring to in verse 14 is actually prophetic because he uses, he says, I'm going to bring you back, but he doesn't say from Babylon. He says, from the nations that I've driven you. And one of the things that, again, I want you to be conscious of as we teach through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, that in one verse, uh, he'll be speaking about one event, but now he's talking about bringing them back into the land a second time. So he brought them back the first time after 70 years. So um, people were asking about the, the ninth of Av and what it is, I failed to mention it's a Jewish Jewish month. All right, let's go back to Jeremiah. For the background, between chapters 26 and 29, um, what's taking place is between the second and the third time that Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem. So the city hasn't fallen yet while we're in chapter 29. Um, some of the people have already been taken back. So in these chapters, we're between the second and the third siege. Jeremiah's message is still the same. Uh, It hasn't changed one bit. Judgment is imminent. It comes from the north. Now, if you'll turn back with me, please, to chapter 24. The Lord divides the people that Jeremiah is talking to into two different groups of people. And he uses symbolism. And this is in chapter 24, Jeremiah's 11th sermon. And he is going to use the illustration of good figs and bad figs. So in verse 5, and he's talking, he's looking at all the people. But he says, some of the people are good figs. So look at verse 5. The Lord says, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will... Acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have set out of this, sent out of this place for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans, or Babylon. So there were those, remember, uh, last week we talked on Wednesday night, don't fight this. Don't uh, argue with Nebuchadnezzar. Go and raise your families, plant your gardens, settle in. You're going to be there for 70 years. Now, the false prophets were saying during the same period of time, what Jeremiah is saying is not true. Don't believe it. It's only going to take two years, and everybody's coming back. So we have two different messages. Now, the good figs that are mentioned here are the one who, were, who said, we better do what Jeremiah says and receive our discipline. But in verse 8, we have the bad figs. Who are they? Let's read it. And as the bad figs which cannot be eaten, they're so bad, surely thus says the Lord, so will I give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, the princes of the resident of Jerusalem, who remain in the land and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. So we have two groups of people, but let me point this out, both of them have one thing in common. The good 
figs, the bad figs, the one thing they had in common is that they were both under God's discipline. And that's the context here. That's why they're going into captivity. Some are going to live by accepting the discipline and doing what Jeremiah says, don't fight it. And the other ones were listening to the false prophet and say, we're going to fight it because we're only going to be here two years anyway. And we like what they're saying better than what Jeremiah is saying. But both of these groups were disciplined. Now let's go to our text in Jeremiah 29, verse 10. It gives us the duration of how long they're going to be disciplined for. Verse 10 says, For thus says the Lord, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you, perform my good word toward you, and cause you to return to this place. Now, why 70 years? In Leviticus 25, verse 1, the Lord is speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai. And he says, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, Now when you come into the land which I give you, then the land will keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you can sow your fields, and six years you can prune your vineyards and gather its fruit. But on the seventh year, it'll be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath of the Lord. You shall neither sow uh, your field nor prune your vineyards. Well, this is what happened. It wasn't consecutive because you would have to have um, every seven years, 70 times seven, 490 years, they were actually in the land longer than that. But what the Lord is saying, it's clear from the above passage that God had a specific reason behind the deportation of Judah for 70 years. This would mean that Israel violated the sabbatical year of giving the land rest 70 times. So he says, you owe me 70, and I'm going to let the land rest because you didn't let it rest. Now, farmers understand this today. We, they talk about rotating their crops, or they'll talk about letting the ground lay fallow. Um, today, we're able to get around it because of fertilizer, but the nutrients are all sucked out. So it was to their best interest to listen to the Lord and just let the land lay furrow. It would have been productive. Uh, but they didn't do it. They didn't trust the Lord, and for 70 times, uh, they disobeyed. So, um, God is disciplining them, but here is the most important part of this whole book is right in these verses right here, because it shows us that discipline is very, very important, and the motive behind the discipline is just how much God really loves his people. So let's read it. He says, but I want you to know, yeah, I'm going to discipline you. 70 years I'm going to discipline you, but I want you to know this. I want you to know that my thoughts that I think towards you are thoughts of peace and not, not of evil. I'm not mad at you. To give you a future, I want to give you a hope. And then you're going to call upon me and pray to me. They had been worshiping the Baals. They weren't seeking the Lord. They had gotten away from the God that loved them. And so now he's pouring his heart out, and he's telling his people, I have to do this. And the discipline has to be there, but I want you to know that I'm doing it because I love you. And once you're there for 70 years, you'll get the message. And then when you do, then you're going to call back on me again. Not Baal, not these other gods that you're worshiping that can't help you anyway. They have ears, but they can't hear, they have eyes, they can't see, they got a mouth, they can't speak. And I created everything you're looking at. And you're going to come back to me. And what we see here is that he's encouraging them to do it with their whole heart. If they do it with their whole heart, then the Lord says, I'm there. And I'm going to restore you. I'm going to give you a hope. And, and here's really where, where the gospel comes in. I'm going to have you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, where's Ecclesiastes? It's back right after the Proverbs. It was written by King Solomon. And um, when I was a kid and got my first record player, that's what they were called, record players, <laughs> somebody uh, gave me a Birds album, or I heard it, 
And they said, there's a, there's a song on here, Dwight, from the Bible. And I said, I don't think so. The birds don't write songs from the Bible. And they said, yeah, it is. It's called Turn, Turn, Turn. And what I later found out, because I'm an old folky too, it was actually Pete Seeger uh, was the first one to set it to music. But the words, turn, 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 come from Ecclesiastes chapter three. So I'm thinking this week, you know, the, the song is basically there's a time for everything. There's a time to uh, be born and there's a time to die. And I thought, I'm gonna go back and read Ecclesiastes chapter three. I wanna know if there's a time for discipline. That's what I said out loud. So I went and I read verse three, and it says there's a time to break down and a time to build up. And I thought, that's exactly what the Lord called Jeremiah to do. Now if you turn to Jeremiah chapter one, you'll find his calling. In verses five, the Lord says, before you were even in the womb, I knew who you were, and I called you. Jeremiah didn't want the job. He said, I can't speak, I'm just a kid. And the Lord says, don't worry about it. I'll I'll put my hand and touch your mouth. And then he charges him with this charge to be a prophet. And his commission is verse 10. He says, see, I have set you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to do what? To root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, and then after I've stripped you down, then I'm gonna build you up and I'm gonna plant you. Now, after the first service, I had a Marine come up. There's no such thing I learned as an ex-Marine. A Marine is always a Marine. And he says, Dwight, I wanna tell you something about your study that uh, really ministered to me and the importance that we understand as Marines. First day in boot camp, this is what we were informed. Our sergeant came up to us and looked at all of us and he says, we're gonna break you down. Those were the first words that came out. And uh, the whole process is in order to become a Marine, we first have to destroy all that you think you are. And then when we're done breaking you down, then we're gonna build you up. And when we're done with you, you will be a Marine. Hooah! I learned that from Chick and Mike. They're both Marines. Well, the principle was really clear to this Marine. He got it. That um, there is a time, and now we're talking about, I want to take this and apply this to the Christian life, where there is a time to break down, and then there is a time to build back up, as we see in Jeremiah's calling. In Matthew 21, we were in men's prayer yesterday, and we were to be going through 20, 21, and 22. And we read uh, these scriptures. Um, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, and he said, didn't you guys ever read the scripture, the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Now, the stone is Jesus Christ. And we have a foundation stone and we put on this addition out there from Corinthians. And it says, no other foundation can anyone lay except that which is laid. And that's Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. And they had rejected him. But Jesus was saying, I'm the very foundation. And then he says this in verse 44. And whoever falls on this stone, see here's the breaking part. Whoever falls on the stone will be broken However, on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, what is Jeremiah saying to these two groups of people? Good fruits and bad figs. Good figs, bad figs. They're all under judgment. They're all under discipline. But one of them is receiving the discipline, and as a result, it's a a breaking process. They're going to be out of their homeland, out of their country, Um, and they're going to be dealt with, and they're going to be disciplined. But the Lord says, know that I'm doing it because my thoughts towards you are good, not bad. I love you guys, but you need to be broken. So here, this, this scripture, whoever falls on a stone will be broken. 
Gang, it's important. This, this message that I'm giving this morning is not being preached in this church right here with all the people. <laughs> no, people, people don't want to hear messages like this. But actually, we really do because we know that we need to be broken. We know that the Lord has to deal with us when we do something that's wrong. And because he loves us so much, he's not gonna let us get away with things. So we find here, Jesus said, if you're gonna come to me, you're gonna be broken. Fall on a stone and you'll be broken. And then he begins what we call the sanctification process of building us back up again into a born again Christian who becomes more, the Bible says we're being changed from glory to glory into his image. So my image has got to go, right? Amen? And uh, in order it's got to be broken down, I have to die to myself, pick up the cross, and follow him. Well, that's not popular. Who wants to die to themselves? I understood this before I became a Christian. I was, I was figuring it out. I was hearing, hearing Christians talk, and I finally gave up with Billy Graham crusade. He got me. But I said, you become a Christian, you can't call the shots anymore. I get it. You, you can't be Lord of your own life. Jesus is now Lord, and I can't call the shots anymore. And I was a free-spirited um, 60 guy, and that was asking a lot as far as I was concerned, to give, give that up and turn it all over. Well, but that's part of the breaking process. So in the Psalms, it's put this way. Psalm 119, verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. In other words, before I was broken. But now I have kept your word. See, the affliction comes first. Then they keep, he keeps um, the word of the Lord after the affliction. I think the best parable that the Lord told concerning this. And uh, let this be a word of encouragement to you parents right now that maybe you have sons or daughters or maybe relatives that are playing the prodigal. It's not that they weren't brought up and it wasn't that you didn't do your best to bring them up in the ways of the Lord. There is adolescence. Everybody know what adolescence is? There's physical adolescence when um, up till you're 17 years old, mom and dad know everything, and then you hit 17, and then they don't know nothing. <laughs> and you're out as soon as you can. I believe there's spiritual adolescence too. In the story of the prodigal son, here was a father who loved his son, brought him up in the ways of the Lord, but he got to the prodigal age of adolescence, and he says, um, I want to hit the road. I'd like my inheritance now. And so his dad gave it to him. And it says he went out and he lived the prodigal lifestyle, uh, parties and um, women and everything that went along with it, and he blew the whole inheritance. He's busted, he's broke. And he has nothing to do and he's hungry and he takes a job feeding pigs. And verse 17, I like this, it says, when he came to himself, where was he? He was broken, eating the husks of corn, that were for the pigs. That's what he was lowered to. He got to that place of being broken, but he came to himself. Now, the Bible says, train up a child in a way he shall go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it, right? It doesn't mean he won't go through a period of time of playing prodigal. But here's why it's important to keep training them in the ways of the Lord now. Because they may play prodigal, and uh, what do you do, mom and dad, when they're playing prodigal? Well, you're on your knees all the time, praying that they come home, praying that they get things right. Amen? That's what you're doing? Do you think the story here of the father, that was he was doing daily? Well, he came to himself. And he said, well, I remember that my dad has a lot of servants, and they eat pretty good. If I stay here, I'm just going to die of hunger. He says, I know what I'll do. I'm going to rise up. I'm going to go home. I'm going to say, Dad, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just make me one of your hired servants. And he rose and he came to his father. Don't you know that dad was out every single day looking down that long winding road, 
wondering if maybe today is the day he'll come home. Well, this day he went out and he looked, and here comes his son. His son's broken. He says, Dad, I blew it big time. Will you please forgive me? Just take me in as a hired hand. Well, this is what the father did. The father said to, said to him, bring forth, bring forth the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's eat it because we're having a party tonight because my son was dead and he's live again and he's found and they began to be merry. He backslid for a season. But here's the difference between a person who knows where to go when they hit bottom. And that's why it's so important to share with the youth because they can get caught up in the world. And a lot of them end up in a pig pen. And they backslide during a period of time. New Testament talks about it. It said a backslidden person after hearing the truth and going back to the old ways is like a pig returning to its, its, uh, its wallow and a dog returning to its vomit. How is that for a description? <laughs> Turns my stomach too. But after knowing the truth and then backsliding, it's like going back to that, to what? Well, when they come to themselves and they remember, I remember how good it was fellowshipping with my brothers and sisters in the Lord. I remember how good it was um, to be worshiping the Lord and studying God's word. And I turned it back over and went back to that. Well, he, that person has hope and they know what to do. But if they don't have the gospel, show me a person with no hope who doesn't know the gospel and I'll show you a person who's ready to check out. Because when you lose hope, but he had hope because he, he knew that he could go home. Let's apply it to Jeremiah. They had to be disciplined. They were worshiping other gods than their true God. The Lord had to deal with them, but he says, I want you to know this, guys. I'm not angry with you. You're human, you sin, and as a result, my thoughts towards you are are good. I'm taking you to the woodshed for a while, but it's necessary. Love is the heart of discipline. The very fact, and I, I think of my hero, David. You know, David is going to be the one sitting on the throne someday in the kingdom. You know the Bible teaches that? Well, Jesus will be Lord of Lords, but the one actually sitting in his place is going to be David. And, um, I mean, he had it all. Uh, He was a warrior's warrior, right? Saul's killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. He was a musician's musician. Oh, Saul's feeling a little low. Who's the best in the land? David over there in Bethlehem. And um, then he's a, a writer of the writers. He wrote more, more than half the Psalms that we read. And uh, so he had the whole package. On top of that, the Bible said he was good, good looking on top of it. So he was complete. Sure wasn't perfect. In 2 Samuel 11, we read it happened in the spring of the year when the guys go out to battle at David, sent Joab, and he stayed at home. And at Jerusalem. And it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Not just beautiful, but very beautiful to behold. David sat and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is, is that not Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and he took her. She came to him. He laid with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and then she went home. Then David sent messengers, and then the woman uh, conceived, and after she found out she was pregnant, she sent and told David, she said, I am with child. I want to talk just a little bit about the time frame where David knew that he had committed adultery. And then to cover his tracks, he takes out Uriah. He has a murdered. So we have adultery and we have murder. And I want you to turn, I'm going to quote Psalm 32, but I would like you to turn to Psalm 51. Both of these were written during the time that David was not confessing his sin. He had lost the joy of the Lord. 
He could not sleep at night. While you're turning to 51, let me read um, Psalm 32 also about the same incident. He says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. He says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old and through my groaning all day long. So all he could think of was the sin was continually there. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I'm gonna confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Psalm 51 is also about what David went through. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is ever before me. And against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. And this verse right here um, is just David acknowledging, it's in my DNA. Sin is just a part of who I am. And, um, you know, we look at these cute little babies, and they go, goo, 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 and they smile, and, and they wink, and all that kind of stuff. You know what they really are? Little sinners, this big. You know how you want to know how I know for sure? What's the first word they say? No. The very first words out of their mouth when they're born. What does that tell you? They're in total rebellion. David said, I was, I, was, I was conceived in my mother's womb with this disease called sin. And we're all infected with it. Human race, there are no exemptions. Good place for an amen. We're all infected with this deadly disease that has eternal consequences. So David is acknowledging that. And he says, verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you make me to know wisdom. He says, purge me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness again. Oh man, I remember when I was free with the Lord and um, I knew the truth that set me free and now sin has separated him and that's what sin does, sin separates. And because of his sin, he had no joy, he had no freedom, he had no gladness. He says that the bones which have been broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquity. Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. He had lost it. And uphold me with your generous spirit, and then I'll teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. The Lord loved David. And he went through this time where the Lord says, we're not talking. You're not gonna feel my presence. You're not gonna experience my joy until you come clean. And then when you come clean and you've received the discipline, um, then everything will be back. And that's exactly what the Lord, through Jeremiah, told the people. You're gonna be disciplined. But when the discipline is over, know that my thoughts are good for you. Now, at this time, I have a question for all of us here. My question is, what are you known for? I know what David is known for. If I would say, somebody would ask me, what, what was King David known for? I wouldn't say the affair with Bathsheba, and I wouldn't say the murder of Uriah. You know what I'd say? I would say, I think of David as a man after God's own heart. That's what I think of David. When David comes to mind, He's a man who is after God's own heart. Well, my question for all of us is, what are you known for? 
not what you think you're known for, but what would other people say of you, like I just said, of David. Now, keeping in mind, we're all sinners and we've all fallen short. And we all, we've all broken God's law. But David was known, and that's the reason he's going to have that position, because when people thought of David, he was the guy that had a heart after God. Now, no matter what your position is in life, mentors like to gravitate to be acknowledged in whatever their profession is. But I'll tell you straight out and what the Lord is concerned with above everything else. If that person that is observing you, the first thing that doesn't come, that should come to their mind as well, all I know is he's a Christian. Good place for an amen. That's what we should be known for. Now, you can be a Christian um, carpenter or a Christian nurse or a Christian housewife, fill in the blank. But that should always be second and not first. You should, we should always be the light of the world first, and then whatever we do, we should be known as being followers of Jesus rather than whatever our particular work is. Now, to drive this point home, I'd like you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. This had to be a heartbreaker for the Apostle John. By the way, when you think of John, what is he known for? I know what I think of when I think of John. He says, um, that disciple whom Jesus, Jesus loved. That's how John referred to himself. Who's John? Oh, he's that disciple who Jesus loves. And he was also the founder of the church of Ephesus. And uh, this had to break his heart because that's what John was known for. He was known for his love. And um, here he has to write to a church that he founded. And it was the church of Ephesus. It would later be taken over by a guy named Polycarp who was martyred. And John's got a... He's taking dictation from the Lord, and we read here, these things says he who holds the seven stars at his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor. I know your profession, your patience. You can't bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles that are not. You found them liars. You have persevered. You're patient. You have labored for my name's sake. You haven't become weary. And then he says, nevertheless, they got all this stuff going for it. It says, nevertheless, I have this against you because you have left your first love. First of all, notice they didn't lose it, but they left it. Well, what did they leave it for? Evidently, um, these other activities, which are all commendable, and in other words, their job description, if you would. But the Lord says, that doesn't impress me. What, what you need to do is return because you've left your first love. And now they need to be disciplined. And so he, he's rebuking them. I mean, here in verse five, he says, remember from where you have fallen. They're backslidden as far as he's concerned. Repent and do the first work or else. Jesus is saying or else. Or else what? He says, or else I'll come and remove your candlestick from its place unless you repent. Well, the candlestick in verse 20 is described, the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Jesus is going to remove himself from the church if they don't get back to their first love. Is that what he's saying? That's exactly what he's saying. Now, I'm from the 60s, and I remember a group called Peter and Gordon. They wrote a song, World Without Love. And one of the lines goes like this, I don't care what they say, I won't stay in a world without love. And that's what Jesus is saying to the church of Ephesus. I don't care how good your track record is. I don't care how many good programs you got going on. If you're not loving me, number one, I'm not sticking around. And so you can go on playing church, but unless there's, like Paul said, it's, it's the love of Christ that compels me. And if anything other in ministry is compelling you, then for your sake, get out of ministry. <laughs> because... The Lord says, and it's him that's giving the ultimatum, or else. I call them the three R's. First of all, remember. Remember what it was like when you first met him, and how he set you free. And all you could do is talk about him, and the love, the empty spot that was there, and I was filled. He says, remember, and then he says, repent. 
get back to that. That's because that's what I want. And then return. Now let's tie this into Jeremiah. What did they do? They got off track. And so Jeremiah is saying, you're going to be disciplined. And through it all, in the middle of this heavy discipline, the Lord says, but I want you to know something, that my thoughts towards you are for good and not for evil. I love you, and I created you not for you to work for me, but so that that I would be your groom, and you would be my bride. So the whole context of the Christian walk revolves around not our works, but our love relationship with the Lord. All right, let's see if we begin to um, tie this all up here. One more place. Let's go to Hebrews, and we'll close up there. Hebrews chapter 12. Title again of the morning's message is Love the Heart of Discipline. And you need to understand that because we're human, because sin is part of our DNA, you're going to fall short. There's going to be that need for discipline. And so when it happens, the writer of Hebrews, picking in chapter 12, verse 5, instructs us now. He says, Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, don't despise the chastising or the discipline of the Lord. And don't get discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Can I read that again? The one the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. Now, if you endure the discipline, the good figs did, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? But if you are without chastising, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and you're not sons at all. In other words, if you're going around continuing in sin and not turning from it and not feeling the heavy hand of the Holy Spirit upon you and you're just blowing it off and it doesn't bother you at all, my Bible is telling me right here, you're not even born again. You're not even saved. You're illegitimate. And so the idea that God doesn't let those that he loves gets away with things. We call it grieving the spirit or quenching the spirit. And you know when you do it. I'll say amen. Will somebody please join me so I don't feel all by myself? Okay. We know when we do it. And that's good. What does that prove? Oh, my thoughts towards you are for good, not evil. I have hope for you. I have a plan for you. And I want to change you. But in order to change you, you've got to be broken first. You've got to be broken down like the Marine. And then we're going to build you back up. And when you're done, you'll be a Marine forever. And the Lord says, when I'm done with you, you're going to be my bride forever and ever and ever. And it's going to be based not upon your works, but it's going to be based on a love relationship. And so he goes on to say, it's not joyful. Um, Verse 11, no correction seems to be joyful for the present, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have noticed, and I have this underlined, been trained by it. It's a training process that the Lord corrects us and as part of the process. And it's so important that we get this because you're gonna go through times when you feel like you really are in a woodshed. And guess what? You really are in a woodshed. And you're there for a reason. And the reason is to change you, to build you up. And what he doesn't want you to do is in the next verse. says, therefore strengthen the feeble hands which hang down and the feeble knees and and make straight paths for your feet so that that the lame can be healed. In other words, don't have a pity party. Yes, it's not joyful, but know this as part of the process. Everyone that comes to the Lord that he loves, the Lord corrects. Yesterday, Like I said, a men's prayer, I just, I have to repent because I lied because I said that was the last verse. So now that I've confessed my sin, we can turn to Matthew 22 and finish the morning study. Matthew 22, verse 34. 
I threw it in after men's prayer yesterday. And I thought, what a great way to close the study. Verse 34, 22, the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is, like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this, this heavy thing. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything that God has given us in the law. Let's just take thou shalt not steal, for an example. Okay, so my next door neighbor. I know he's got this really nice riding lawnmower in his garage, and I happen to know where he stashes the keys. And I know he's going to be out of town for a week. Now, because I love him, he's my bro, I'm not going to go over there and rip off his lawnmower. Do you see how love fulfills the law? Thou shalt not steal. Well, I don't want to steal it. I love the guy. But if I, if I wasn't um, a brother and I was a thief instead, um, I would have broken that law because I know when he's out of town and I'll be finding those keys and I'll put that on uh, the pawn shop and we'll see what we can get out of it. So Jesus says, on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. What? Love. Can you see why the Lord is concerned with the church of Ephesus? Oh, they had it all down. They were doing it all right. The Lord says, not impressed with any of it. Get back and do the first thing. And when you do the first thing, everything else is just going to fall in place just like that. Do they need to be disciplined? Here in the middle of Jeremiah, he has one message. Judgment, judgment, judgment. You've played prodigal. You've gotten away from me. So, 70-year time out until you get it right. But know this. I'm doing it because I love you. And my thoughts towards you are not evil, but they're good. I want the best for you so I can't let you get away with the sin. Amen? I stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that your word tells us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The hard stuff. We're just grateful, Lord, that you lay it out for us in the scriptures, that a part of this Christian life and the seasons that we go through, any of us that are Christians, because you love us, we're going to receive the chastisement from time to time, as any mother or father would do. So we thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.